you would, to the book of Titus again. Titus chapter 2 now. Titus chapter 2. I'm going to keep my promise that I made this morning that on Mother's Day I won't preach a sermon of about uh, about moms. You know, it's uh, it's again. I've I've been in many churches where it's been the uh, the uh, time for preaching on what it means to be a godly woman, with the result that moms will walk out of church, their heads hanging low, realizing, you know, I didn't quite live up to that sermon this morning or this evening. So again, I I always determined that on Mother's Day, I want to make sure uh, that that doesn't happen. Now, Titus 2 is sort of a well-known passage, you know, being a Titus 2 woman's books, there's all kinds of Titus 2 women ministries, kinds of things like that. But actually, if you take a look at this chapter here, the first eight verses are sandwiched. Uh, there's, it's a sandwich. So, you know, the first two verses are about men, and the last three verses are about men, and then the interior three verses are about women. So what I'm planning to do this week here is to talk about, you know, really concentrate on the one thing that can do more than any other uh, about having godly women in the church, and that is to have godly men in the church. So I want to spend some time here talking about what it means to be a Titus II man. Hasn't gotten quite the press time, perhaps, that the Titus II woman has, but actually there's more verses given over to the Titus II man in Titus II than to the Titus II woman. Paul here is coming off some rather stern instructions, if you'll remember, from chapter 1. We talked about the 16 qualities of godly pastors. We looked in fairly fine detail because you're presently engaged in the task of choosing another pastor. Uh, So we we looked at those, and then uh, two weeks ago, last time we were here together, uh, we see Paul giving the reason for this rather exclusive list. Pastors need to be well prepared in these many spheres of life, 16 spheres of life, home, community, ethics, industry, pedagogy, in order to prepare for the avalanche of hostility that he may and likely will face in his time in the pulpit of a church. And the description of this opposition was made here in verses 10 through 16. Perhaps it came across to you as rather discouraging. There's reminders here that Satan skulks around like a roaring lion seeking to devour the church of God. It's not pleasant. But it's really necessary to remind ourselves that these things are true. We can't wish away those things by by ignoring them. They're there. And so we look here at these his primary strategies and we saw if we remember back in verse 11 that there is a something that the, uh, the 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 lion this satan often does he upsets whole households verse 11 says whole families and so what we find after Paul addresses the problem of these false teachers, these hostile people who are attacking whole families, what does he do? Well, he spends some time talking about what you should do in building a godly family. So it says here, but as for you, okay, in contrast to these 
these, these filthy folks who are trying to upset the church and upset the families within the church. But as for you, speak the things which are fitting sound doctrine, specifically older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith and love and perseverance. Older women are likewise to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, not enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good, so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God will not be dishonored, and likewise urge the young men to be sensible. In all things, showing themselves an example of good deeds with purity in doctrine and dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach, so that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. Okay, so again, starts out here by saying, but you, first addressing Timothy himself, probably in the category of young men, a little bit more on that in just a moment here, uh, but then largely to the church uh, at, at large, uh, to, to live in such a way uh, that he can establish whole families rather than despoiling or destroying whole families. Paul tells Timothy almost the exact same thing in 2 Timothy chapter 3. We, we're, we're finding this a parallel passage quite a bit as we work our way through Titus. But after giving Timothy the discouraging news that everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted with evildoers and impostors going from bad to worse, he adds this, but as for you, Timothy, same words, same structure, continue in what you have learned and become convinced of it because you know the character of those you learned it. Who did he learn it from? Good thing to remind us of on Mother's Day, right? It was from his mother, Eunice, and his grandmother, Lois. These are the people who taught Timothy the basics of the Christian faith. Don't, don't ever discount the fact that much of the information that goes into our children's heads is not, you know, from the pulpit. You know, as much as I like to flatter myself into thinking that, oh, you know, all the kids are listening. Yeah, but, and I'd, I'd like to think that they are. At the same time, they're hearing a whole lot more from dad and from mom, right? Okay. And that's, and that's what he says here. Eunice and Lois, mother and grandmother, taught Timothy how, or the basics of, of, the, of the Christian faith. And he taught them, and, she, and they taught him from infancy the God-breathed Holy Scriptures. Again, we're still in chapter 3, that, had, that can make a wise, person wise unto salvation and are of such a comprehensive nature that Paul says that they can thoroughly equip the believer from, for every good work. And then immediately afterward, he says, Preach the word, be prepared in season and in, out of season, correcting, rebuking, encouraging with great patience and careful instruction. And so what does Paul say? Well, having scrapped with the destructive beast in your midst and emerged a bit hurt and a bit bruised, get back up and start working afresh on building again, using the basic building blocks of the written word, each one starting in his own household. Not as an end unto itself, but as re each unit relates collectively to the broader household of the faith. 
This is a, an important observation to begin this section here in chapter 2 because when a church is in an immature state, as it is here in the island of Crete, or in a weakened state, which Timothy was seeing at Ephesus, or when a church has, in her own estimation, failed us, what tends to happen? There's a tendency, I think, among Christians in every age to neglect or even abandon the organized church and retreat to the isolation of the family. The family can do a better job than the church, we tend to think. But Paul intertwines the civic function of family and the ecclesiastical function of church together in such a way that you cannot divorce the two. If you want to have a good family, Paul says, start by being a good church member. If you want to have a good church, Paul says, start by building a good family. The two cannot be pulled apart from each other. And if you try to build one without the other, both fail. And Paul's in, in, in both here in Timothy and also then in Titus, where we're looking tonight, makes a point of this. So as we start into our passage here, one of the big interpretive questions here is whether Paul is talking about relationships within individual families or the relationships of demographic groups in general and specifically in the life of the church. And the answer is yes. <laughs> it's both. So Paul is addressing not only how we are to uh, to, to operate within the walls of the church, the relationships of men and women, old and young, and uh, rich and poor, but also within the life of the family. We're each developing our own individual family units as a microcosm that will emerge in the church at large. Again, neither can be separated from the other without doing significant harm to both. They're constructive. They're mutually constructive enterprises. Paul actually deals with five different categories we've mentioned here in, that we find in civil society. Older men, older women, followed by younger women, younger men, and then finally, well, I'll call this class the labor class. He calls them slaves. I think we can expand that perhaps a little bit to, to include everyone who is a laborer, a worker. And Paul's central message in this whole first section, first 10 verses here, uh, his, 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 uh, his, his central message is that each of us as believers will successfully fulfill our respective function or functions within God's civic order, the church of God will inevitably flourish. He begins, I think rightly, with older men. Because men are designated by God to take the lead in households, whether we're talking civilly, you know, in the, in the nuclear family, or whether we're talking uh, the ecclesiastical household, the household of faith, the church. He begins with older men because it's not youths, but they're gray-haired forebears who on account of their maturity and experience should have, should have, and I emphasize that, should have the greater capacity to lead. Of course, this elicits immediate objections. What if my family unit has no man? No man that will take the lead in cultivating the spiritual life of the family? Or what if the men of my church are spiritual midgets that don't have any Christian vitality? 
Paul doesn't really deal with this problem, but embedded in the instructions to women here and in the rest of the scripture, an answer may be constructed. And it may not be what everyone perhaps wants to hear. Paul does not say, as we might expect, well, in that case, well, then you women need, really need to step up. He doesn't say this. Instead, he says this, train women to love husbands, love children, be self-controlled, chaste, working at home, kind, submissive to their husbands, because that's the way God has chosen to advance his word. And this, this advice is echoed by Peter in 1 Peter 3.1. Wives, be submissive to your own husbands. Probably a, a, an emphasis here, not just following any other, any man out there, uh, whether he's a real man or a, one constructed from a Christian romance novel or a Hallmark movie. Follow your own husband so that even if your husband does not obey the word, he may be won without a word by the conduct of his wife when he sees her respectful and pure conduct. Specifically, in verse 4 he says, you should have a gentle and quiet spirit which God prizes above all because this is how holy men who hoped in God have adorned themselves by submitting to their own husbands. In other words, both Peter and Paul say this. They reflect the theology of Genesis 3 and the curse that fell first on Adam and every woman thereafter. To the woman, God says, your desire will be to control your husband, but he will rule over you. Or perhaps in modern vernacular, your husband will rule ineptly, but your desire to take charge will end badly. That's the curse in a nutshell, right? It's the universal experience of women everywhere to be forced to submit to leaders who are imperfect, and it's the universal experience of men to lead women who are imperfect as well. And so Paul and Peter and Moses all teach that the most rewarding way for women with inept men to find relief is to be good followers. Nothing will produce competent male leaders more effectively than that, despite what you may think. But it is Mother's Day, and I did promise that this sermon would be primarily directed to men and about men. Let me do that. So let's go on with these instructions for men. Because just as good followers make for good male leaders, so also good male leaders offer the best incubation for excellent wives and mothers. So I'm, I'm turning to, to you men here. Yeah. How do you have a wife who follows, who submits? Well, Paul and Peter and, and uh, the rest of them, not sure what happened there, uh, would, would tell us to, in order for that to happen is be good leaders. And they will become good followers. Nothing will produce uh, more competent female followers than good male leaders. So Paul begins with these older men, and probably the first order of business now is to identify what, it, what an older man is. This is another reason I want to start with men, because I feel more comfortable defining what an older man is than an older woman, right? The issue is not so much age here, but life experience. Consensus is that a man transitions from younger to older in Paul's world when his children begin to establish homes of their own. So when his sons are now the young men. So when his son, once, his, once one's sons become young men and they start establishing families of their own, 
then the, then the man who was young now becomes, by definition here, an old man. Okay, so default, he becomes the old man. Now, the, the old man here, the elder, is not the elder pastor that we looked at in chapter 1. Now, we've already seen some detailed requirements of the elder for the church. And we're not, we're not to confuse the elder of the church and the old man here in chapter 2. Uh, although there's a great deal of overlap. Okay? In chapter 1, we suggested that the church's elder, that is his pastor, its pastor needs to be deliberately accelerating in his maturity so that no one, in the words of Paul to Timothy, will despise his youth. So that's, that's, that's how the, the pastor pre- prevents people from de- despising his youth. He doesn't act like one. Okay, and that's, that's perhaps the answer to that one. So what we have here uh, in, in, in Titus 1 is perhaps greater than the ordinary expectation of men. Men tend to mature slowly, and as a result, they can be despised. And so the elder must self-consciously accelerate his maturity. But here we are talking about men who are developing, perhaps, ordinarily. This is the expectation as a man transitions from the role of dad to something more akin to the family patriarch, grandpa. Or in the crucible of uh, the, the, perhaps the, the community sage even, because the households in that day perhaps exceeded just the nuclear family. There was often a, there was often a, 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 you know, a, a collective uh, within the, uh, the household there, not just a nuclear family. And so he has become a mentor, not only in his family, but now also within the household of faith. And that's the goal of an older man, to be... A, a mentor, a leader within the household of faith. Not because it's prestigious, but because that's what men are supposed to do. Men are supposed to become leaders within their church. And that's because, and, and the church is desperately in need of such men. At no time more than now. So how does one become one of these older men that tight, that Paul so 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 favors here in chapters two. Well, Paul offers four qualities. Now, the first three we actually find in chapter one, so we can go through them fairly quickly. The fourth, though, I think is a is a is a summary that I think we'll we can slow down upon. But let's look here at this summary of what it means to be an older man who is a Titus two man. Because the you know, so so it's probably. Not necessarily go into detail about all of these, but I'd like to draw attention to the kinds of qualities that are here. And let, let's, let me just start by looking at the range of terms that are used. In your text before you, it says older men are to be temperate, dignified, and sensible. Let's, let me show you the same three words in four other translations because I think they sort of help us round out the meanings of them. So temperate, dignified, sensible, and NASB. ESV, sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled. NIV has temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled. Holman has level-headed, worthy of respect, and sensible. And the King James has sober, grave, and temperate. So you can put all of those together, and you sort of get, get a picture of what the old man is supposed to be like. So what do these have in common? 
Again, if we can use some words I used before, it's the idea of being measured, reserved, careful, thoughtful, and objective rather than the opposite. Impetuous, impulsive, careless, thoughtless, silly. Older men are designed by God to be the level heads in every conversation, every decision, every dispute, every crisis that comes into the family and into the church. They may not always be the first to speak, but when they do, they should speak sensibly, soberly, temperately, gravely, so that people will listen. Because the old man has been equipped by God to be the objective voice in both family and community. Part of this is because of his experience. It's not all credited to his experience, but at least part of this is because of his experience. Dr. McCune, whom I mention often as a mentor of mine in the faith, always encouraged us as young bucks when we were coming through seminary to take the long look whenever we speak or act. He always elongated that word. Take the long look. What does he mean by that? Think before you speak. Think before you act. Think about what the implications are of what you're going to say and and what it will look like 10 years down the road. Look far into the future to see what the implications of what your decisions now are going to lead to. And I think also when when he said take the long look, he was implying that you look backwards too. Because when you look back, you see what happened when people made decisions just like the ones you're about to make. When they said the words that you're about to say, when they did the things that you're about to do, we have examples. If we simply look behind us, history is filled with examples that can give us some instruction on how we are to conduct ourselves in the household of God. And the reason that older men are better at this is why? Well, because they don't have to read a history book in order to know this. They've actually lived through it. They've actually seen what happens when decisions are made poorly, when words are chosen carelessly. And so Paul here is looking for people who have active and keen minds. They speak carefully and they speak slowly, but it's not simply that they've become slow. You know, some older men simply slow down over time. Paul is not looking simply for people to slow down. He's looking for thoughtfulness, alertness, objectivity, incisiveness, carefulness. And so if you're sitting here as an older man, I find myself right now on the cusp right in between younger and older. I've got a son who's just married now, so I'm I'm just turning the corner from younger to older The goal is not for me simply to get old or to slow down or to do less. Getting old and slowing down is inevitable. Becoming a Titus II man takes work. The last quality for older men in our passage seems particularly designed uh, to tell us what areas need the most work. Specific areas necessary to becoming a Titus II man. A godly older man will be sound in three areas. It says here, in faith, in love, 
and in perseverance. The idea of being sound or solid carries two nuances here. He must be correct in his expression of these virtues, and he must be resolute in his expression of these virtues. Both are necessary. It will not know simply to it will not do simply to know what is right and then be indifferent to it, nor will it, be, will it do to be bullheaded in pursuing what's wrong. And you've probably known older men who've been both ways, right? And so Paul says, make sure that you are correct in the expression of your virtues and resolute in the expression of these virtues. These are the ditches that the old man needs to avoid. So what are these three spheres in which he must be sound? Well, first it says here you must be sound in the faith. Put simply, he must have a firm grasp on what the Bible says. Be committed to it, and perhaps most importantly, to be relentlessly aware of what faith should look like. Okay, so not only knowing what the Bible says, but then having taken that and say and, and asked the question, what does faith look like? How does it translate into a comprehensive worldview that encompasses all of life? How can the older man then tell those who are in his charge, the women in his family, the children in his family, how they are to conduct themselves in a faithful way? That's the responsibility of every man in this room. He must also be sound in his love, or perhaps his loves. This does not communicate primarily that he must be an affectionate person. Some older men need to work on that too, but I don't think that's the point here of this verse. Instead, what Paul identifies here is this very important value, the correct love, Uh, is that he must find what is truly valuable and be committed to it, to love those things. It's an unfortunate tendency of older men to reach retirement age and do one of two things, enter into a life of entitlement in which he stops caring about anything but himself, or two, he pursues the kind of loves that have no lasting value. It's, It's... It's what our society tells us we ought to do with our retirement. But that's not what the scriptures tell us we should do. Paul implies here that retirement is not the beginning of me time. It's time to spend and be spent in the pursuit of that which will glorify God, to love the right things and pursue them relentlessly. I had a good friend at Inner City Baptist Church who used to epitomize this for me. His name was Cliff Talley. Some of, some of you know, anybody know Cliff Talley? A couple of years ago, I asked him if he wanted to join me one afternoon at the firing range. I knew he, was, he enjoyed guns, and I asked him, hey, would you like to join me at the firing range, shooting range, and have some, shoot a few boxes together? He was an older man. He had plenty of time for leisure, I thought, so he would be jumped for the chance. But he told me that he wasn't sure if he could fit it into his time budget for the week. His time budget. So I asked him, come again? (laughs) What's what's your time budget? Well, he budgeted his time just as anyone might budget money. 
He had recently calculated, based on how long his parents had lived, exactly how many weeks he had left to live. And he was building a budget for the balance of the time and money he had left in his life so that he would spend both as effectively as possible in pleasing God until it was his time to go. I'm not saying that you have to do this, men, but I can tell you it's a very good idea. At a minimum, I think we need to think about what it is that God would have us to love with the rest of the time that we have left, however much it may be. Turns out the cliff didn't have many years. He uh, contracted a form of cancer and died shortly after that conversation. But I'm very confident that when he got to heaven's doors, he was pleased with his decision to budget both his time and his money to pursue the loves that God would have him to pursue. Thirdly, an old man needs to be sound in his steadfastness, his perseverance. Some of you perhaps have translations that read here, patience. And it probably is, again, incumbent upon old men to work on their patience, right? Uh, At the same time, the term here probably means more than this. The idea here is endurance or perseverance. This is the determination to pursue a faithful expression of life and to tenaciously pursue those correct loves until the end. And the words that the Puritans used to use, men need to learn to die well. To, to, to use every bit of time and resource that God has given and push all the way to the end until one dies well. And why are these things so vital, we might ask? Well, skip down to verses 6 and 7, and I think we find out. Because it's because young men are supposed to be cultivating these very same virtues. They're to be sensible an example of good deeds, pure in doctrine, and dignified. They need to know what these things look like. If a person, if a young man is ever to get past being a young man and the immaturity that attends that, he needs to have good examples. Otherwise, Titus implies, typically impulsive and hot-headed youths will lose their way. They'll lose their restraint. They'll bring reproach upon the family and on the church and even on society. For those of you here today who are young men, this in no way gives you an excuse in the day of judgment if you didn't have very good examples as old men above you. Every man stands on his own two feet before God at the last day. But here's the thing. A man without examples of dignity, deliberation, and objectivity is far more likely to commit these kinds of errors in egregious ways and will be a source of shame. But in view of the day, let's bring our message to a conclusion that's directed to the object of our celebration today, and that's mothers. Because the actions and habits of older men are not only influential on sons, but also on whole households. Men, whether you own it or not, whether your family granted to you or not, whether society even allows it, you stand at the top of God's hierarchy, both in civil structure and also in the church. The buck stops with men because that's how God planned it from the beginning of time. In demonstration of this, please turn with me, if you would, to 
Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. Genesis 3, verse 6. This, of course, is the account of the event that resulted in the curse that we referenced earlier here, the fall of man. It says here in verse 6 that when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from the fruit and ate and gave it to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Much can be said about this event. Of course, it's a major event in the history of the world. But the point to which I'd like to draw your attention here is a rather mundane clause. She gave some to her husband who was with her. This clause, I think, is significant because it explains the otherwise strange fact in Romans 5.12 that sin entered into the world by one man. It's not one woman, even though Eve was the one who ate, but rather it was one man. Why? Because that one man was with that one woman he was responsible for her. He should have been sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled. He should have been measured, reserved, objective. He should have thought long and hard about the implications both of his actions and also of hers. He should have taken the long look before speaking and acting. He should have been sound in faith and love. He should have seen the theological implications of disobedience and led his wife the opposite direction into the embrace of correct values but he didn't and that's why we're here today right but let me take you to one other passage first timothy chapter two and we see here something that perhaps might be a surprise to us after all we read there in genesis two you might think that god would be finished with men just that was a failed experiment but he's not. Look at what he says here in 1 Timothy 2, 12 to 14. In the wrong chapter here. I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet because it was Adam who was created, then Eve, and it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman, being deceived, fell into transgressions. Perhaps this is a strange choice of texts, you think, tonight. Perhaps it's just, you think it's just a strange text. Adam blew it. We saw this in Genesis. We saw this in Romans. He blew it because God made him to be the objective leader in his family, the clear-headed one who kept his wits about him when his wife was deceived. But rather than save the day, Adam had sinned coldly, deliberately, conscientious, consciously, without any duress, but the psychology of men has not changed. Men are still psychologically equipped by God to be the leaders in their civil unit, in their family. That hasn't changed. And even though Adam has failed, it does not say from that point forward, well, then forget men. No, God says men are still in that place, that place of responsibility, both in the family and in the church. This is to say, and I think we can do this with strict fidelity to the text, that men, and especially older men, are responsible today, even as Adam was, for his wife and for his children. As the spiritual health of our men goes by and large, so goes the spiritual health 
of the whole church, our families, our wives, our children. And so we come full circle in the day. What is the very best present that every man or boy can give to the wives, mothers, and other women in his life, in their lives? Should they give them dinner, flowers, chocolate, cards, a day with no chores? Now, these are great tokens of appreciation and affection, and shower the women in your lives with these things today. By all means, do this. Be generous. But the best gift that we can give them, Matt, is husbands, sons, and men who are temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, sound in faith, sound in love, sound in endurance, in everything setting an example by doing what is good, showing integrity, seriousness, soundness of speech, so that nothing evil can be said against us. I'm no woman, but I think I can safely speak for the women here that they would gladly give up all of the trinkets that they receive on Mother's Day. From now to the grave, they could have that. They could have that. So give her what she wants and most desperately needs on Mother's Day. Give her what God wants from you on Mother's Day. Be a man who is a follower of Titus too. Be a Titus too man. Let's pray. Lord, we're grateful for your word and for the instruction it gives. Lord, we thank you for the men here who are represented in this church. I feel that I can be stern here just because I have a group of men who are, in, by and large, doing just this. But Lord, we can all improve. Lord, I ask as we read again and are reminded of your words to us about what we are to, to aspire for as young men and as older men in the faith. Lord, I ask that these will be the marching orders that we take as into the, into the next week, into the next month, year, and for the rest of our lives that we might be pleasing to you in all things. In your name we pray. Amen.